only easy ones. <laughs> so, do you have any questions? So the question <coughs> was about uh, the understanding that refuge really means a kind of safety or protection, and <coughs> our understanding how the precepts provide that, but wondering about <coughs> the other refuges, like in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha, uh, how they work. <coughs> of course, this could be a whole, <coughs> a whole talk. Uh, <clears throat> so, in terms of refuge in the Buddha, you know, and I think this was talked about even on the on the opening night. But understanding what that means for oneself on different levels, because <clears throat> on one level the Buddha was a historical person, you know, gave certain teachings, and we. Uh, have access, you know, to those teachings. And the teachings themselves provide a refuge, uh, <clears throat> first in their clarity. You know, and it's, it's really quite amazing as you read the suttas, <clears throat> uh, which is this vast body <clears throat> of teachings. And the clarity with which the Buddha understood <clears throat> the nature of this mind and body and what are the causes of suffering, and what are the, what's the potentiality for freedom. So it is a real refuge. Well, we can take refuge in that clarity, rather than living our lives in a lot of confusion, as most of the world is. And as we can see the, the fruit of that, of not, not actually knowing you know, on some deep level, what are the causes of happiness, what are the causes of suffering, and having a certain methodology to be able to make those choice, those choices. So we're not simply acting out unconsciously the habit patterns of our conditioning. So that's a huge refuge. You know, the clarity of understanding and the methodology <coughs> of practice. <clears throat> and in some way, that is also the refuge in the Dharma. <clears throat> you, may, you may know this, this is quite a famous uh, story in the text, where there was one, I think it was uh, a monk who was completely enamored of the physical form of the Buddha. You know, and so he would always be sitting and just gazing at the form. And at a certain point, I mean, that might be seen as devotion, but at a certain point the Buddha admonished him and he said, you could look at this form for a hundred years and not see the Buddha. 
It's only those who see the Dharma, who understand the Dharma, who see the Buddha. You know, so in that way, the refuge in the Buddha and the refuge in the Dharma are the same. Because when we understand the Dharma, that's when we're seeing the Buddha. The refuge in the Sangha, <coughs> again, it can mean many things. <coughs> Very traditionally, Sangha refers to the monastic Sangha. That's, that's the traditional meaning of the term, you know, nuns and monks. And there is a certain refuge, even though most of us in the West may not have kind of an in, intimate connection with the monastic Sangha, although many of you might, uh, there's a tremendous appreciation, can be a tremendous appreciation for realizing uh, that they, you could almost say that institution, you know, the, the, of the monastics over 2,600 years <coughs> have preserved the teachings. You know, and so we're benefiting, you know, from all of those nuns and monks over thousands of years who have preserved the teachings and make them accessible to us. So that's, that's one meaning. Another meaning, it's called the Arya Sangha, and that refers to any being, lay person or monastic, who has realized <coughs> uh, at least one of the stages of awakening, you know, of realization, who has really uh, realized for themselves, you know, the depth of the Buddhist teachings. Now, this is a refuge, in a sense, and I'm actually glad <laughs> you asked the question because this is something that I think sometimes is not emphasized enough in the West. It's a refuge in the understanding that awakening, enlightenment, liberation, freedom, peace, whatever word you want to put on it, is actually possible. You know, and now we can hold that as an aspiration in our practice. Because very often, and you see this, you know, in the tremendous popularization now of mindfulness, which is a great thing, you know, and it's really helping a lot of people. But that's very often devoid of the understanding that le this leads to something profound. This has the potential to free the mind, to actually free the mind from the forces of greed and hatred and delusion, which are so deeply embedded. And so when we take refuge in the Sangha, the Arya Sangha, all those beings, you know, monastics, lay people, who have realized this for themselves, even, even to the first stage, so it makes real the possibility. And that's a tremendous refuge in our lives. That's like, we can, we can have the aspiration of awakening <coughs> kind of as the pole star, you know, guiding us on our path. Uh, so even, and you know, you're in a fantastic situation here, where your whole day, every day, for six weeks or three months, 
is just about mindfulness and paying attention and waking up. And all of that can be done with this vast aspiration. You know, just let this be for my own liberation and the benefit of all others. So that's, that's a tremendous refuge. You know, where we enlarge the potential. We enlarge our understanding of what's possible. Referencing Guy's talk, quoting the Sagradatha about <coughs> the disaster of separation. And <coughs> <coughs> although you're not asking how to get rid of it, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and in the telling, it will also point to what to look for. Because uh. Just, just to classify, I, I, maybe I didn't say loneliness, specifically loneliness. Mm-hmm. That's, what, that's what I'm not trying to, to, to get rid of. Don't expect to get rid of that specifically. Well, <laughs> don't hold on to it too tightly. <laughs> because uh, loneliness... This is, you just uh, shifted my, (laughs) I was just talking with a uh, a yogi in an interview. (coughs) There's a book that I've been wanting to write for years. It's basically a three sentence book. (coughs) So you would think I could have written it by now. And the title of the book is The Myth of Intimacy. And so what I mean by that is that the general myth of intimacy is that it requires someone else, requires another being, you know, to create that field of intimacy. And in one way or another, if that's not present in our lives, we often feel lonely. You know, we feel that sense of separation. So that's the myth of intimacy. The experience, <coughs> or at least my experience, of intimacy has nothing whatsoever to do with the presence or absence 
of another person. It has to do, and you need to take this in because it would be easy to let these words just slide, slide over you, but they actually refer to your experience while you're here. A practice is actually to experience, and you do experience, even if you're not paying attention to it in this way, that we are becoming completely intimate with each moment. So if you're sitting and feeling the breath, and there is a complete connection and feeling of that breath, there is no separation in that moment or hearing a sound. When you are totally hearing a sound, and just hearing, or totally feeling the sensations of a breath, in that moment, are you lonely? I don't think so. Because there is a complete being one with the experience. There's there's not a duality in that moment that creates separation, which then can result in the feeling of loneliness. And as I mentioned to this, uh, you know, in this interview, years ago when I first went to India, uh, I was walking with Munindraji, my first teacher around Bodh Gaya, just in the little villages around Bodh Gaya, you know, on these uh, dirt paths. And he said something then which at the time, I dismissed. I thought it was very hokey, you know. For those of you not from native English speakers, you know what the word hokey means? (laughs) What does hokey mean? (laughs) It's a hard word. (laughs) Uh, Silly. uh, Silly, yeah, okay. (laughs) like silly. I didn't take it seriously. But he said, we'd be walking around and he said, I'm never lonely. I'm friends with the clouds. I'm friends with the flowers. I'm friends with the dust on the path. And again, when I heard it at the time, I was like 21 years old and it did not go over too well. But over the years of my practice, I have so come to appreciate the depth of what he was trying to tell me, that when we actually are fully experiencing whatever it is that's arising, there is that ongoing sense of intimacy, you know, and non-separation, and non-loneliness. It's only when we separate ourselves from experience. So that's when, <coughs> you know, this feeling emerges. And just as an example of this, which often strikes me, uh, both in watching yogis on retreat and being on retreat myself, what do you think somebody <coughs> who has never done intensive meditation practice, would think of somebody spending half an hour or an hour 
walking 15 steps back and forth. (laughs) I mean, it would probably look like an insane asylum. (laughs) And probably would think, that is the most boring thing in the world. You couldn't imagine doing it. And yet when we do it, as you know, when the mind is fully there, just that, just that movement. It's amazing. You know, to be so completely one with the flow of sensations, everything is complete in that moment. So, all that being said, in those moments when you're not fully engaged in that way, and there is a sense of separation for whatever reason, and the feeling of loneliness should arise, lonely. (laughs) Lonely. Loneliness is like this. But if you can recognize it and accept it and not be afraid of it and not be averse to it, and remember that as soon as you are reconnected with the moment, that sense of separation disappears. There's talk about refuge. That is a fantastic refuge. So if you'd like to buy the book, The Myth of Intimacy, (laughs) it'll be available (laughs) some year. (laughs) It's so interesting to me, you know, it's just, we're so conditioned to think that our happiness, our fulfillment, our connectedness depends on something outside of ourselves, on someone outside of ourselves. And it's all how we're relating to the moment, to the world. Doesn't matter, it doesn't really depend on how the world is relating to us. Okay, so the question is about anatta <coughs> and how the ego is anicca. <laughs> but, but, but like yes, yes, yes. If there's no self, who's reborn? If there's no self, who experiences karmic results? Is that basically it? Just so you know, I think the most frequently asked preface to a question is, if there's no self, then. (laughs) Because this whole notion of selflessness is so counterintuitive. You know, our whole lives and conditioning and the world and language, it's all revolving around the subject. 
So that's why the Buddhist teaching and our practice and the realization of selflessness is such a, it's like a little bombshell <laughs> in the midst of, you know, the, the solidity of that conditioning. The understanding <coughs> really has to do with uh, seeing more and more clearly that this mind-body process, as you see and realize, is changing moment to moment, that each moment is conditioning the next and conditioning the next, but there's no element which is carried over. And so, just a, a few different examples. You know, if you plant a seed in the ground, and the seed grow, it germinates and it sprouts, and you know, becomes a sapling, becomes a tree, fruit, fruit drops to the ground, new seed. It's not that the first seed was carried into the sapling and then into the tree and then into the fruit and that same seed then falls to the ground. There's nothing carried over. It more is a process of transformation, of becoming. The seed, due to various conditions, becomes this, becomes this, becomes this. Right? So this is the process of becoming, which is what the Buddha called this whole cycle of life and death, it's just a process of becoming due to conditions, but it's becoming lawfully. So when you plant an apple seed, you don't get a mango tree. Right? There are laws governing the unfolding of the process. One of the laws is the law of karma. But there are other laws, there's just the, the basic laws of science, you know, which are other laws governing the unfolding of the process. Selflessness does not imply that the unfolding process is unlawful or chaotic or random. Right? And so there can be a stream of consciousness arising and passing, arising and passing, so, what we would call your stream of consciousness is a different stream than mine, and we're using yours and mine conventionally. But in that stream, there's no one thing, there's no, there's no self underneath the flow of changing phenomena. That's what's meant by selflessness, that there's no enduring, unchanging entity to whom the process is happening. So the process is unfolding moment after moment, but it is unfolding according to certain laws, and therefore the whole laws of cause and effect and karma can happen selflessly. They're not happening to someone. They are actually a description of how the process is unfolding. And so just to just as this is happening, you know, moment to moment. And it would be very interesting, you know, when we talked about noticing, uh, 
Well, really noticing every part of your experience, but particularly in noticing intention in the mind. You know, when you notice an intention to do something, that, that's a mental phenomena. The mental phenomena becomes a condition for a physical action to take place. There's no one behind it. What we are is that process unfolding. You know, and so we call, we call that whole process self. And conventionally, using conventional language, it's fine to use that term. It's just we're misled into thinking that all experience refers back to someone. So instead of thinking it like this, you know, okay, my thoughts, my feelings, my movement, my actions, everything back here, you might think of it like this. Thoughts are arising, feelings are arising, sensations are arising, and they're arising and falling lawfully. This conditions this, conditions this, conditions this. And we call the pattern of an unfolding life self, which is fine. You know, we, we use that conventionally. But there's no one there to whom it's happening. What we are is this unfolding process. So, has all of this been the cause of more confusion or less confusion? <laughs> or neither? Well, I have insights about how that makes sense. Yes. No, well, nah. patience. <laughs> you know, <coughs> no, this, this is the hardest. To have at least a clear, even if it's just on the conceptual level, but by now it's probably dropped down somewhat, even more than the conceptual level, some glimpse of understanding it. Yeah, well, I think I think one of the one of the difficulties, for example, in that equanimity phrase, you know, you or I am the heir of my own karma. We just need to be careful because we use, even within the Buddhist teachings, very often we're using conventional language, conventional designation, and the Buddha did. You know, we talk about I and you and. You know, people would come, and where's this person reborn? And so conventional language can be used. We just want to understand that it's being used on that conventional level, not on the level of, of it's not the language of selflessness. So there's no need, it's fine to use the language, there's no need to be confused by it. Even in the, in the metta practice, you know, we, we, the, the metaphor is happening on the relative level of being. You know, may you be happy, may I be happy. It would be very awkward. May the five aggregates sitting over there <laughs> be at ease. <laughs> or have, you know. <laughs> so there's not really a problem in using the appropriate language. But we want to understand what is really the, the more ultimate reality underneath it all.
Well, there was one couple that stayed at the forest refuge for four years. <laughs> you can just move in. <laughs> Obviously, it is easier here, you know, because <laughs> this is a very protected environment, you know, and very little distraction. And so, which is the great beauty and the gift, you know, of a retreat like this. My experience is that having gone in and out of retreat, you know, endless times over the last 50 years, it was a lot harder in the beginning, you know, and the disjunct, the disjoint between the two was quite big at the beginning. But in just continuing the practice, you know, in a, in a really committed way, and being in retreat, then out of retreat, and then back in retreat over many, many years, it actually does become more and more integrated. You know, and there's less of a sense of <coughs> such a big difference, because just through the repetition of seeing what's wholesome and what's unwholesome, you know, we just see it over and over again, both here on retreat in our own minds, and then to, to be watchful in our lives in the world and to watch that same thing. Okay, what actions are causing suffering to myself or others? What actions don't? Just the repetition, that, the repetition of that, which is why it's called practice. Um. There's a story of the great cellist, Pablo Casals. At 93, he was still practicing three hours a day. And somebody asked him, here's this great master. Why are you still practicing three hours a day? And he said, I'm beginning to see some improvement. <laughs> so, <coughs> You really want to think of practice both here while you're on retreat, but also the cycles of being in and out of retreat. Our understanding is not a slope like this. It's not that we, you know, it just gets clearer and better and purer and like that. It's much more like this but the slope of the curve is going up. You know, so there will be a lot of ups and downs and a lot of times when we're really clear and bright and in harmony and then you know, in some way we fall or we forget and then again we reconnect. But over time, as I say, the slope of the curve is rising and we find the Dharma more and more integrated in our lives. So I would just have confidence in that. One area which, you know, it's not so, the teaching is not so appropriate for the middle of a retreat, so I'll just mention it now, but it has tremendous uh, benefit out in the world. Is exploring in depth and practicing with commitment right speech. Because in our lives in the world, we talk a lot. 
you know, most of the day we're in conversation one way or another. It's not so often that people actually are paying attention before they speak to what they're about to say. You know, it's like... (laughs) So just that, as an arena of practice in terms of bringing it to the world, would be huge. And, of course, there are all the other aspects as well, so just mention that one thing. Yes. It's obviously easier uh, to connect with asking for and extending forgiveness when we're conscious of the harm that was done. When we're not conscious of it, we can start. I mean, just as a foundation for practice, kind of just asking for blanket forgiveness (laughs) for all the things I've been unaware of. At least that there's a seed of wisdom in that, in acknowledging that we may have done a lot of things out of ignorance. So even that is a big thing, because many people don't even recognize that that is a part of their lives. So that's not insignificant, even if we're not yet conscious of the actual harm being done. I mean, so a lot of the work is actually in educating ourselves in those arenas where we may have some inkling that we're causing harm but we don't quite know what it is. So I'll just give you a few examples. you know, we've mentioned a few times that you know, the staff, the teachers, the board here have been doing a, a lot of work over these years in trying to understand and undo racism and a lot of trainings. And, and it's been, it's just been so illuminating of exactly what you're saying, just unconscious behavior slowly becoming conscious. And so just one example, you know, one, this is just one little piece from the training that became more and more obvious. And as you say, 
good intention is not enough because there's a difference between intention and impact. So we can have a good intention and yet the impact of what we do may be harmful. So that, just, just taking that in, you know, enlarges, enlarges the arena of our investigation. So instead of simply noticing our intentions as best we can, we also start paying attention, well, what's the impact of those actions, you know, on the people around us? So that's a beginning you know, where we're, where we're beginning to sensitize ourselves to that. So I see a lot of the work in terms of becoming aware of unconscious harm that we may be doing is self-education. You know, real, realizing that there are these areas and taking upon ourselves to learn about it. You know, and to see, and I think that begin it's it's a beginning, you know, to help us be a little more aware. Um, so I don't know if that ex- exactly addresses, it's a big, it's a big arena, and I think we all have that responsibility. Uh, so I'll just give you another example. Uh, some years ago, there was a yogi on retreat who was kind of a, but I didn't know till later, but of kind of a very high power uh, government consultant you know, on on the highest levels, you know, uh, and doing a lot of uh, aid work around the world. And part of the Buddhist teachings, which I had expressed very often and fully believed. Uh, and it's, it's actually a phrase that, uh, well, it's a phrase that's found in, in different of the teachings where it said, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Right? That motivation is really the key. And he came into an interview and really got on my case for that. Because he said, yeah, that's half of it. But he saw a lot of situations in the world where the motivation for a particular aid action was good, the motivation was good, but the result was terrible because there was not a good understanding of the situation. So that, that was another way of opening that it's more than just motivation. Right? It also, we, we need to enlarge, as I say, enlarge our area of, of investigation. You know, what is the result? What is the impact? Because often we act perhaps with good intention, but perhaps also with a lot of delusion about the situation where we're not really seeing or understanding it well. You know, one of the things that is almost the inevitable result of intensive practice, you know, that you're doing and that I see over the years. <laughs> it's almost impossible to sit and watch the mind, you know, as we're all doing, and not develop a huge humility. 
you know, when we really are taking an honest look at our minds and see everything that's in it, you just have to kind of, oh, <laughs> there's a lot going on here. And a lot is beautiful. You know, there's, as you know, there are a lot of beautiful qualities, but there's also a lot of ignorance, of where we're not seeing and unskillful things. And the beauty of the practice is that we get to see it. And that's, that's really what you're doing. And in that sense, it, it's really, I think, quite a courageous thing for people to sit down and look to see what's really there. teaching culture was in your insight tradition and the yogi practice culture was in the very beginning and how that's shifted and, and how, how things are today and what are the, some of the wholesome things that were happening then which are not happening now you know maybe in terms of yogi attitude practice things like that I'm not sure I understand the question uh, when you say yogi, who are you referring to exactly? Well, one thing I heard, for instance, is that um, you know, there was a lot of emphasis in the very beginning on practicing for Nibbana. Uh -huh. and, um, right. That's one thing. Right. I mean, there's others. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the question was about how there may have been a shift over the years from what's emphasized in the practice so, for example, when many of us were practicing in Asia, the goal of enlightenment, Nibbana, was clearly articulated, and that's why you went to practice. You know, so it was just very strong. As we've taught in the West over many years, the question is, in the comment really, that seems to have <laughs> faded a little bit, you know, in terms of the uh, clarity with which that's put out as the goal. And I, th I think that is true, uh, which is why I was glad the question came up earlier. One of the reasons uh, is that you know, as we began teaching in the West, we really saw the potential, uh, potential and actualized uh, hindrance of, you could say, overstriving. You know, where that goal orientation became out of balance instead of being an aspiration that one was practicing towards, it became kind of a vehicle for tightening people in their practice and overstriving. And so it's possible we overcompensated. <laughs> you know, okay, just relax back into the moment, let it unfold. Uh, 
So for those of you who are not overstrivers, this is only for you. The overstrivers don't listen. <laughs> for the non-overstrivers, Nibbana or bust. <laughs> <laughs> For the overstrivers, relax. <laughs> There's a natural unfolding to the practice. So it's a good question, you know, and this, this is part of the very interesting... It's just very interesting to see in the larger picture the transmission of the Dharma to the West. This is a huge a huge transmission to a new culture. And relatively speaking, it's still very new. You know, that it's really become so uh, active here. You know, 30, 40, 50 years is nothing in the, in the long history of the Dharma. So I think we're all really, we're the laboratory for what works, what doesn't work, what needs to be emphasized, what needs to not. Um, But uh, just to emphasize on what the first question was about, to really understand that the very opening lines of the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, the Sutta and the Foundations of Mindfulness, this is the direct path to liberation. This is the direct path to the realization of Nibbana. You know, and. Just to clarify, Nibbana is not some <laughs> heavenly space, you know, that you're going to sit back and just... <laughs> the, the clearest understanding of Nibbana, and I love this, this particular expression of it because it's so pragmatic, it's not metaphysical, where the Buddha described Nibbana as the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion. When the mind is free from those conditioning forces. And so you can see that when you're practicing with that in mind, what we're practicing in each moment is to be with what's arising without clinging, without aversion, without delusion. And so then we are actually practicing, you could say, temporary, momentary Nibbana. Uh, so it makes it, it makes it much more real rather than some kind of far-off abstraction.
it's almost like not moving in the impulse to, tr to try to you know, abandon is, is I'm in the quicksand at that point in a way. There's a, I don't know how to sort of articulate, but I think you understand what I'm trying to convey. And I guess I started thinking about kalpas and, you know, the old story about the, the bird with the silk over the mountaintop, and I'm thinking maybe that's how I, uh, Duke or uh, Tom, I guess, abandoned <laughs> similar kind of style. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, you know, the question about the second noble truth and the, the craving is the cause of suffering and the abandonment of craving, but how the mind can get caught up in the quicksand of efforting to abandon craving, which is, can just be another craving, and whether it's just this incredibly slow process of, you know, where the Buddha described an eon, you know, which is this vast amount of time of this, I forget how large the mountain was, but a large mountain and a bird every hundred years just uh, running a silk cloth over the top of the mountain. At, an eon is how long it would take for that mountain to wear away. You know, and so that was the definition of an eon. I'm wondering whether that's what it's going to take to abandon craving. Some years ago, I actually had a run retreat. I had a really significant shift kind of in my understanding. I, I think of the very question you're asking, because for a long time in my practice, I saw the end of craving sort of as the goal of practice. And I practice, 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 and maybe in 20 years or 30 years or 10 lifetimes or an eon, I'll reach the end of craving. So that was a little discouraging. But in this particular retreat, in kind of just reflecting a little bit about the Four Noble Truths and what that meant, I really understood that the end of craving can be understood and realized in each moment. It's not just about the final uprooting of all craving. The experience of the end of craving, and the third noble truth, can actually be in every moment. There can be an end of craving in that moment, an end of craving, in that. and that is a genuine realization of it, even if it's just for that moment. So one uh, aspect of the teachings, which I'm glad we have the chance to talk about it, because this also is, can be a very immediate practice of this. One of the most common tendencies in meditation, and I've seen it in my own practice and you know, working with yogis over all these years, there is this very strong tendency in our practice to be leaning into the unfolding process. That we actually are experiencing this mind-body as a process unfolding. You know, we feel it in terms of the energy sensations in the body. It's, you know, maybe there's a tension that is unwinding. 
or an emotion that's opening, or a breath that's going in and then out. Right? The whole system we often experience as an unfolding. And because it actually is unfolding, we tend to lean into the unfolding. So we're with this we're with this moment in order for this moment, in order for this. Can you relate to this? Kind of that leaning into what's next. At a certain point, I realized that that is exactly what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about the second kind of craving, this craving for sense pleasures, which is obvious. But then he talked about craving for becoming. And I said, yes, this leaning into the leaning into the unfolding is really craving for becoming. We're here, but we're wanting this, as if the next moment will suddenly bring the resolution of everything, even though <laughs> the last 10 million past moments have not. <laughs> you know, you'd think we would know it by now, but we don't. We, we keep thinking, oh yeah, I'm this, and then everything will be resolved in the next moment, or the next, or the next. And so that is being caught on the wheel of samsara, the wheel of becoming. So when we see this, the practice then, and this is something you can really practice, is to pay attention to that feeling of leaning into the unfolding, and then just it's like dropping back so I'll give you a couple of examples and it's possible I mentioned this but you know one of the teachings of Sayadaw Tejaniya and very useful teaching is he says check the attitude in the mind with whatever's happening what's the attitude in the mind about it so at one point I was just sitting actually I was just sitting you know here in the hall and just feeling my breath, it was completely simple. Just, just feeling the breath, in and out, and in and out. And if you had asked me, is there any craving in this moment? I would have said, no, it's just feeling the breath. But then I remembered to ask that question, what's, what's the attitude? And it was so interesting. Simply by asking the question, it wasn't even for the answer. It was simply by asking the question, what's the attitude? I could feel my mind relax back from a wanting that I didn't even know was there. You know, and in retrospect, I saw, yeah, I was with the breath in the most subtle way in order to get concentrated, in order for more calm that slight leaning into becoming. Just by asking the question, what's the attitude? And I could feel the relaxation. That moment is very instructive. Uh, So really, this this is really a powerful refinement of the practice because we can be really quite mindful and, and quite concentrated in the unfolding and be missing 
this craving for becoming. Uh, so it's a very interesting uh, thing to look at. And <laughs> you know, as we've said in the hall a uh, number of times, only six things are ever happening <laughs> anyway. So what do we think the next moment is going to bring? <laughs> it's just going to be another sensation or another sound or another thought or, or another... That's all that's going to ever arise. So, but our conditioning, you know, for the conditioning for craving is very strong. You know, just one of the one of the great beauties and of Dharma practice, and it's it's why it's so compelling, and it is obviously compelling to all of you because you're here for this length of time. Um, that it just opens us to so many different levels of who we are, you know, and so. It opens us, you know, to a discernment of the kind of thoughts we're having and to the different emotions and to see which are afflictive, which cause suffering and which don't. It opens us to, you know, our bodies in so many different ways and feeling the different levels of the energetic system. It opens us, you know, to all the hindrances it opens us to the most subtle levels of just what I mentioned, you know, the, just the subtle level of craving. And when we see that, the ease in that moment of settling back, even if it's just for a moment, you know, it's not something that we should think, okay, now I've got it, I'm going to just, just another story relative to your question. I was at, I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge and I was reflecting on the Four Noble Truths and the, yeah, craving is the cause of suffering. So I said, Joseph, just stop it. <laughs> you know, if craving is the cause of suffering, just stop craving. It seemed so simple. <laughs> it was just so funny because I really thought, okay, got it. And of course, you know, a minute and a half later, oh, I wonder what's for lunch, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it takes, <laughs> it takes practice. <laughs> okay, maybe the last question. Well, I think that I think that actually is a form of mana. Conceit is not a very good translation of that Pali word. 
uh, conceit really is any, any form of I am, you know, whether it's relative, you know, whether it's comparing, whether it's what you described, just that sense of I am, imagining how other people are perceiving you. Uh, I think that can all be classified as mana. A couple of things, and uh, Bonnie may have mentioned this uh, in her talk, but I found mana one of the most interesting things to keep an eye out for. First, to know that as the defilements go, this is the last to be uprooted. Man is not uprooted until arhanship. So even after the view of self is uprooted, even after desire, all desire and aversion is uprooted, which is, that's pretty big in itself, this habit of I am is still there. So first, make friends with it. You know, because it is going to come up in a lot of different ways. At this point in my practice, I am delighted every time I see it. You know, I see mana arise, it's like I just smile. First, because I'm glad to see it. I'd rather see it than not see it. You know, ah, there you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Second, when I see it, and, and in the, see, the seeing of it is enough, you don't have to do anything about it. Because in the seeing of it and being mindful of it, it's there and it's gone, it's impermanent like everything else. But in the seeing of it, I, each time I feel, okay, now I'm working on ahanship. <laughs> you know, because this is the defilement that, so that's kind of, you know, makes me excited. <laughs> It's really helpful to emphasize the delight aspect in the mind from seeing the defilements, rather than get caught in a judgment, either a judgment about them or a self-judgment about the fact that they're arising, which is just another, you know, we're just sinking back into the morass. But it's like, you know, in the Buddhist text, very often uh, the, the comment will be, Mara, I see you. Yeah, I'd love that line. So, so every time mana arises in whatever, these, whatever form, it, ah, I see you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's totally delightful that you're all here. <laughs> Because this is such a great thing to be doing, even if you don't feel that all the time. <laughs> Which I'm sure you don't. <laughs> you know, it's, there's a lot. It's like we're just opening to the whole show. And some is easeful, and some is really difficult, and some is pleasant, and some is unpleasant. But that is the practice. You know, the, just the willingness uh, to see it all. Uh, and it's tremendously liberating. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.